Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant at Purdue, and I'm joined today by the fixer himself, Ethan Chitty. Ethan, how are you today? Howdy, howdy. We're doing great. Living the dream. Living the dream. Excellent. Remind me to ask you about that later and how one lives the dream. One way that you might do it is by doing a lot of outdoor activities during uh, the winter. But the outdoor activities that have been available this winter have been slightly different from the outdoor activities that are available in other winters since we've had more days in the 50s in the last couple of weeks than we have in the 30s. Uh, and, and so I was actually wondering about that. And I thought it would be interesting to talk to someone who knows and, and talk about sort of the warm weather we've been having, why maybe the effects on lake ice and things like that. And so we've actually asked a guest, well, you know what? We're going to jump right into it, but first, first, first or first, uh, since our guest is a researcher, we all know what time that means. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher going to teach us about the Great Lakes. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Rood. He's uh, with the Department of Climates and Space Science at the University of Michigan College of Engineering, and he's also a Dow Sustainability Distinguished Faculty Fellow in the College of Engineering, the School for Environment and Sustainability at University of Michigan. Uh, Richard, how are you today? I'm great. Fantastic. It's good to be great. Uh, so we're, we want to talk a lot about... Um, climate science and, and lake ice and how the winters are changing. But but first, I always like to think about origin stories because I think of scientists as superheroes because why not? Um, and uh, so what is your origin story? Was it like a radioactive spider? Um, was it that you grew up as kind of a nerdy kid? What was the deal? I never thought of myself as a nerdy kid. I grew up in a family that did have scientists and, and have uh, a long history, actually, in science and science education. Uh, we, uh, My brother was a Cold War kid that looked for Soviet satellites in space, and he became an astrophysicist. Um, I sort of followed in his path. Um, I became a physics major, which I didn't really like that much, and I liked fluid dynamics. So I converted over to um, meteorology in graduate school, started to study ozone, did well in that. Um, after that, I worked at um, NASA. And because I'm a natural systems thinker, uh, one of the things that happened at NASA is I started to get put in charge of things. So I did global modeling. I did data assimilation. I did supercomputing. Then I got tired of management. Michigan recruited me, and I came to Michigan and really changed my um, research focus and what I do and how I think about things. Interesting. So that was a, a big career change for you, right? What was it that drove you to that? Was I mean, so you're interested in fluids and stuff like that. I mean, who isn't? It just depends on what fluids you're interested in. But um, what, what drove you to sort of really take on climate as a bigger part of, of what it is you do? When I was recruited to Michigan, there was not a lot of climate emphasis in our Department of Climate and Space Sciences. And there was a desire by the leadership then to give it more of a climate um, 
you know, culture to start to develop that. And I came there, and the second or third day I was there, there was a conference. And that conference was on climate change. It was sponsored by the Ross School of Business. I don't know what I said in that conference, but at the end of it, three students, two business school students and a public policy student came up and asked me to start a class on climate change and its relevance to society. And that completely redefined my career and at some level what I do in life. So when was this? This was... That was in 2000 and 2005 was when I moved to Michigan and we taught the course for the first time in the winter of 2006. So 05 was Hurricane Katrina. When did the Inconvenient Truth come out? Was that, that was right in then. It was right in there as well. What do you think was driving the students to feel that? I think it's really important, but why, uh, what was in the air at the time? Is it just something about Ann Arbor, which is a progressive town or, or what? I don't think it was particularly about Ann Arbor. I think that there was an awareness. The interesting thing to me, you know, I've had sort of three changes in my teaching philosophy. And the first one occurred very quickly because it turned out that those business students and policy students really thought a whole lot more about climate, climate change and its consequences than the students in science had. The students in science were very focused on their particular aspect of the field and did not really think about it in context that much. And I think that these students needed to feel confident that they understood the science well enough that they could use it in their professions. And they they were not seeing that. And they saw a general lack of climate science that point in time at the University of Michigan. Um, But there was, you know, there was a lot of hope then because, um, you know, even, you know, many prominent Republicans such as John McCain were very much talking about climate change. Obama got elected. There was legislation moving, moving on it. But then, you know, politically it started to all fall apart. Well, let's pull it more um, locally. So, so that's that's kind of how you got here, um, and and it's sort of a story of moving around a bit, which is very common for people in academic jobs, right? And I was thinking about that because in, in my family we've moved around a bit, um, and and one thing we always talked about was we wanted to get to a place where there were four tolerable seasons, four nice seasons. And I did a postdoc here in, uh, back in twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. And we said, well, that's not Indiana because the winter is too cold. And so we moved back here, though, and we found out that, well, not anymore. The winter is not too cold anymore, or at least it hasn't been. Um, this particular winter, we had, uh, you know, we had about a three-day stretch where it was negative 10, negative 15, you know, negative way too many. But other than that, we've had probably more days where the high is in the 50s than when the high is below 30, which is somewhat anomalous, but maybe not. Uh, and so... My question is, so this is a warm winter. Before we move into lake ice, uh, what determines whether a winter is warm or cold? Why is this winter warm compared to others? I'll say the pattern that you experience this year where it's warm with a cold air outbreak is what I would say is the pattern you're going to see in the future. And what often determines the characteristics of a winter, whether it's warm or cold, would be you know these waves in the atmosphere. And if you were to look at a map of the United States, when it's really cold in the east and the southeast, it's almost certainly very warm 
in the Northwest and perhaps even in Alaska. So you always see this pattern of warm and, and cold oscillating like a wave. And so what sets up whether it's a warm winter in the East is whether or not that wave is stuck or stays in a pattern for a long period of time. So weather like that, uh, weather on scales of persistent anomalies, uh, they're called, uh, which are related to all sorts of things in sea surface temperature and mountain ranges where they're located, uh, they set up a winter, whether it's going to be warm or cold or wet or dry. In this pattern that sounds like it's going to happen more and more, that gets me thinking about lake ice, right? Um, because that's something that's very important in the Great Lakes. Uh, we spoke with Sapna Sharma, Dr. Sapna Sharma, uh, way back in episode 42, which you listener can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 42, about lake ice. And she talked about some of the dynamics, but also about the cultural importance of lake ice. And so this has to be affected. First of all, if you could tell me, like, what, how is this, if, what does lake ice do? I guess that's my question. What is sort of the ecological or physical science role of lake ice in the Great Lakes? Lake ice is important in, in many aspects of, of the climate system. The thing that people think about first is that when the lake freezes, it cuts off the evaporation. And, it, you know, it's like putting a, a thin layer of plastic on top of, on top of you know, some water. It's no longer communicating with the atmosphere as much. And when you turn off that evaporation, you change the characteristic of lake effect precipitation, lake effect rain, lake effect snow. So the lake ice is tremendously important to both the type and the amount of precipitation that you get in, in the winter. The other place or another place that lake ice has a big effect is that ice you know, takes a long time to melt. You know, once you have a big pile of snow, it, it stays there. So if the ice is not there, then the water warms up faster in the in the spring and the summer. Uh, there will, of course, be biological changes related to that because you know the fish in the Great Lakes are warm warm water and cold water fish, so things change like that. Uh, but you know that persistence of the ice late into the season. Sometimes, you know, it can be even remembered the next fall if it had been a really big ice year. We did a paper on Apostle Islands um, and ice in the Apostle Islands, and we're not the only one to notice this, but there's a very big shift in the behavior of lake ice in about 1998. And since 1998, the onset and the duration of lake ice has been much smaller. Okay, and so going forward then, like this is just the new normal, isn't it, at this point? And and for at least a while, and then the new normal will, maybe will get worse over time, depending on what we do. Well, actually, in, in my somewhat, I don't think I'm contrarian, but I think I'm nuanced. One of the things that I have objected to is the idea of a new normal, because it's not like we're shifting to something and staying there. We're in a time right now of incredibly rapid change. And so if there is something that's normal right now, it is that we're changing. And I think it's really important thinking about the lakes or climate change in general, that 
during this period of change, it could go on, you know, all evidence right now is it's going to go on for decades. You know, if we do an effective intervention with mitigation, we might limit it and stabilize. But what's true now in 30 years is likely to be very different from what's true in 60, 90, or 100 years. And so this change in variability is, I think, the new normal is that we're getting more variable. Now, with that, um, and this is since about 98, um, downstate, um, we've had a lot of instances where we have smaller ponds that go through really intense freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw cycles rapidly. And we have these giant fish kill-offs as a result of that. Now, with the actual Great Lakes, is that something that you're seeing those really fast freeze and thaws, or is there just too much mass to make that actually happen up there? So in, in the lakes, you don't see the whole lake freezing or thawing because it's too big and it's too massive. Let me, it's not so much devil's advocate, but the, it blows my mind that, you know, whenever we talk about limiting climate change, they talk about two degrees Celsius, which is, you know, three or four degrees Fahrenheit, right? And so we haven't even seen at this point, you know, we're hoping to limit it to that, which means we've had less than that. It, it boggles my mind that a degree or two of warming can have these huge differences, right? I'm not saying that they can't, I'm not denying, I'm just, it, it, how is it that, how is it that that happens? Is it because of the difference between an average you know, uh, and, and sort of what you're actually seeing that makes up that average or, or what is the, uh, how, how does that work? So if you look at, you know, this idea of a degree or two warming and, 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 you know, another part of my transition in teaching in 2008, I decided it was disingenuous to keep talking about limiting it to two degrees. Um, and, you know, we don't have any evidence right now that we're going to do that, but that's perhaps a different story. Um, if you if you look at that, that's a global average, and that is a global average of sea surface temperature and surface air temperature. If you think of where most of the heat goes, most of the heat goes in the ocean, and most of the ocean is in the tropics. So it takes a whole lot of of energy to heat up the ocean and to and to get to that two degrees. But if you look. Um, Locally, um, as you go to the higher latitudes and in your own land, we've already seen significantly more than two degrees warming. And some places in the Arctic, we've, you know, we've seen warming that's, you know, beginning to approach six, eight, and 10 degrees, which is why you're seeing those gigantic changes in, in sea ice and you're starting to see the, you know, melting permafrost. Um, you know, in the Great Lakes region, you're seeing land that used to be frozen is, is not frozen right now. So there's locally, um, there's been a lot more than, than that global average. And this characteristic of, of it warming far faster at um, higher latitudes, which is called polar amplification, is actually just part of the signal of greenhouse warming. Um, it's, it's what we would expect this um, latitudinally dependent land, ocean dependent um, regional characteristics of the warming. So so in other words, right, so it is just a global average and then any average, whether it's, uh, 
you know, it could be baseball or like basketball, right? If you average making about 40% of your shots, you're going to have some times where you're making 60 or 70%, sometimes you're making 10. And so the same with temperatures in that, uh, there's going to be some places that get a lot more to make up for the fact they're, uh, to that the tropics are going to get a lot less. I think that makes sense. Right, right. And, and, and tropics are getting more energy, but because of their mass, they're heating up more slowly. That's why I heat up slowly, my, my extreme mass. Yes, <laughs> we, we have the same affliction. That's interesting. But so you, you sort of mentioned that you're, you, you seem to be really thoughtful about this. And, you know, maybe you're a contrarian or you speak with nuance uh, and you, you think about like we shouldn't talk about limiting when there's no evidence of being limited. But you work a lot in this field. And I think that's part of what you're doing with openclimate.org, right? What is open climate and, and how are you all working on solutions related to this very hard problem? So openclimate.org is my personal brand and where I put out um, um, my lecture materials and some of where I aggregate some of my writings and materials. One of the things with, with open climate is that, uh, one, one, I feel as if climate science is more accessible than um, a lot of people do. I, I think it's simple physics in complex systems. And that the basics of understanding it um, need to be widely shared. The demand for my students um, needs, you know, to, that it needs the societal implications is one of my motivations for open climate. One of the interesting things that has happened with that, and I'll give what I'll call my premier example is that um, right before the pandemic, um, a group of very motivated and outstanding teachers from the science and math school in Battle Creek, um, Battle Creek, Michigan, contacted me about teaching climate high school. And subsequently, um, that group of teachers, and in particular one teacher, uh, Tim Muick, um, have created and taught um, more than one time a, a course in high school that also spans climate and society, but he tuned it, tuned it for them. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do with open climate is get engagement like that and to build more educational materials. My materials have also been adapted in the med school at the University of Michigan, uh, which has been one of the first times in a med school, definitely the first time that our med school uh, started trying to integrate climate change into the training of physicians. On the on your website that you have, you've got quite a quite a wide variety of materials there. Um, if somebody was interested in kind of diving a little deeper into what you've got there, where would you start them off? Uh, on the website. Uh, there, there are two places that I would actually start them off. If you look under resource, I have a resource blog. And, and the resource blog, I try to aggregate um, information in, uh, you know, of different sorts there. And then over under classes, um, if you do a pull down on classes, I have many courses. And then I've also developed... Um, something that I'm not going to remember the name of right this second, topical collections. And so I have topical collections, and I, I often generate those based upon themes that keep coming up in class. 
and 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 I try to aggregate materials there. Uh, so that is that's where I would would send people right now would be the classes tab and the resources tab. Excellent. And we will do that actually again with links to our in the show notes, which you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 75 because this is episode 75 of this adventure. Oh, my goodness. Time keeps on slipping into the future. Well, Richard, this is really interesting to hear you talk about the work you do um, in Lake Ice and teaching us sort of the biophysical importance of it as a sheet of visqueen on top of the, that's not precisely how you put it, uh, on top of the lake. Uh, but that's actually not why we invited you here to t- uh, on to Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? It's very tough. I think I, at this point, have to choose the sandwich for lunch. And so if I go to Ann Arbor, and I don't want to hear Zingerman's. Do not say Zingerman's. We know Zingerman's. And I want to get a sandwich. And uh, I, I, I ate a I breakfast. I had a bagel of Zingerman's. So we don't want to double Zinger. Uh, where should I go in order to get a really great sandwich? The place I go, almost it's, it's almost become a little bit of a comfort place for me, is Red Hawk. Red Hawk. Which is... Yes, which is an old bar down on, um, it's a sort of a traditional Ann Arbor bar place that, um, that has a nice, a nice sandwich. And I like, I like the, the Reuben there in particular. Um, so, so the Red, Red Hawk would be one. Yeah. If you've got somebody coming to the Great Lakes and you want to show them a special place that you wanted to share, um, with members of the audience, where would that be and what kind of makes it special or different from the rest of the Great Lakes? Well, it's a long way from Ann Arbor, but I would probably take people up around the dunes um, because they are, one, one, it's protected, nice area. Well, I guess there's Indiana dunes and then there are the, the Great Dunes, um, the Great Bear, you know, the dunes up on the northwest coast of Michigan and the National Park up or National shoreline up there um so and aside from it being you know well kept and a nice place to go um there's such an interesting sort of geological history there of the remnant of the ice age deposits and then you can also see the effects of lake levels as you see the as the rise and fall of the lake levels. so it's also a nice educational place but um you know, I came to Ann Arbor sort of, uh, sort of mid to late life. So I actually don't have all of the intuition that I would have on that. Um, I have done an adaptation study for Apostle Islands. That was nice. And if I had the time, I'd send them to Isle Royal, which we've also done an adaptation study for. So what is an adaptation study when you say just out of curiosity? Now we're getting far afield again. I apologize. But what are you are you looking at like uh are predicting climate changes and what they might need to do? Is this kind of a multidisciplinary thing or or what? When I moved to Michigan, my research changed that I'm doing research into how to use climate data, climate knowledge, actually more than climate data. And one of the first, and I think the best projects is Al Royal. And when this Technique is used well, the, and in this case, the, the park service actually introduced and sort of led the technique of scenario planning. They have some management problems. 
And they have a very particular management problem on, on Isle Royal that they have this wolf moose ecosystem. And um, for years, the, um, the wolves have been in decline. Um, there has been a, a theory that the wolves actually got to the park and kept keeping their population going because the lake froze and they walked over from Canada. And so the lake's freezing west. So here's another place that lake ice has an effect, but it was getting down to, I think they may have even gotten down to one wolf. And the, and the question was whether or not they should reintroduce wolves. So from a climate perspective, the answer is climate change is not working for that ecosystem because one, if it's disrupted, there's remnant boreal forest there. Boreal forest will not grow back there in the new climate. Um, the moose is dependent upon the browse in that forest. Um, the, the thermodynamics of the moose require it to be cold. So it's getting warmer. Um, the, the moose doesn't, doesn't um, it's not a good environment. So from a climate perspective, um, you know, we can inform the park that they're going to have even more challenges from, from a weather and climate perspective moving forward. Now their priorities, you know, are listed, you know, they have many other priorities, including that's the culture of that park. That's what people come there for. So, so we, we try to inform them of what climate, how to think about climate and climate change in that adaptation. Well, on that semi-depressing note, maybe hopeful and that we're at least thinking about things. Um, I'm going to go back to thinking about Red Hawk and get a room in there maybe. But uh, Dr. Richard Rood, who is a professor in the Department of Climate and Space, Space Science at the University of Michigan and College of Engineering there, and a Dow, one of several of the prestigious Dow Sustainability Distinguished Faculty Fellows in the College of Engineering, the School for Environment and Sustainabilities. Uh, nope, just one sustainability in the School for Environment and Sustainability. Regardless, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Uh, great. Well, that was fascinating. There's a guy who can talk about almost anything, it seemed like, related to climate change. And so I learned a bit about lake ice and uh, some other things as well. It reminds me of a poem my kids uh, were really into, uh, which is it seems like our weather is going to be variable, right? Uh, so kiddos, if you're listening, I think you can uh, recite along with me. Um, and this is from the Waldorf Book of Poetry, edited by David Kennedy, but it's written by our good friend Anonymous. Uh, and that is, whether the weather be fine or whether the weather be not, whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be hot, we'll weather the weather, whatever the weather, whether we like it or not. And that seems to be the story for the Great Lakes going forward. That is quite a tongue twister there. <laughs> I'm glad that you were doing that, not me. <laughs> Ethan had to step out for a minute, and in the meantime, it's time for Great Lakes News. And now it's time for the Great Lakes News. Here's your host, Stuart Carlton. 
Thank you for that, Stuart. And it's time for the Great Lakes News. We are joined today not by Sandra Swoboda, who is on special permanent assignment with the Attorney General of Michigan. She has left Great Lakes now. But we are super lucky to have uh, Anna Seisling joining us. Anna, how are you today? I'm doing really well, Stuart. Good to be with you. How's it going on your end? It is super plus awesome. Because why not? It's, uh, you know, it's January. It's cold. You know what? I'm going to stick with the super plus awesome rather than reflect on it much. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to know the details. All right. So here we go. So it is, uh, it is, we're recording this at the end of the month. It's being released early in February, but this means that you have just released a new episode of Great Lakes Now. Is that right? So let's do the rundown. What are we covering in this month's episode? Yeah, that is correct. A new episode just dropped on DPTV. Of course, it's going to go out and be made available to all of our member stations. It'll be on the Great Lakes Now YouTube channel. It is called Smart Sewers and Sunken Aircraft. And just to sort of give you a little brief overview, essentially, um, it's a look at a high-tech approach for keeping sewage out of waterways uh, that's taking shape in South Bend, Indiana. We take a look at a story behind World War II-era aircraft that are sitting at the bottom of Lake Michigan. And then, of course, yours truly catches everybody up with the catch which offers even more news and headlines from around the great lakes fantastic and everybody you should go right now to greatlakesnow.org click on the youtube link and go listen to it but let's talk about these stories in a little more depth so story number one smart sewers what is a smart sewer? Well, I mean, if you don't really know what a smart sewer is, you're not alone. I was right there with you prior to this segment. So essentially, to kind of give you a little bit of backstory, the city of South Bend, Indiana, once had a really big problem. And that issue essentially was too much sewage was being pumped into the St. Joseph River that eventually flowed into Lake Michigan obviously not a good thing. So the U.S. government ordered the city to do something about it, but the price tag was huge. So essentially, desperate for a solution, city officials found a smart solution. Smart. See what I did there? Right under their yes. noses. And essentially, it was uh, it was figuring out this kind of smart sewer system. So what ends up happening with uh, combined sewer overflow issues, um, which is something that the city of South Bend had, Essentially, during heavy storms, all this dirty water, it can overwhelm the city's water treatment plant, causing what is called a combined sewer overflow. So basically, in 2012, under a federal consent decree, the EPA ordered South Bend to clean up its act, and the plan was to build an enormous underground holding tank. But like I said, the price tag was too high. It was like a billion dollars. So city officials went in search of this solution. And essentially, they ended up finding that right up the road at the University of Notre Dame, engineering students were working with the U.S. Defense Department to develop embedded devices or smart sensors to track down terrorists in remote areas. So the thought was that if these sensors could be used to monitor bad guys, they could also monitor sewer pipes in South Bend during heavy storms. At a minimum. At a minimum, they could. All right. So the original plan was basically just a huge shared underground latrine. And that's out the window. And so, so what do they, what do these things monitor exactly? So my, my sewer system has a regular level of intelligence, whatever that is, but, but these are smart. And so, so they have the sensors. What do the sensors do? Yeah. So the sensors coupled with these smart valves, basically it works to find empty space in South Bend, 600 miles of sewer pipes. And it uses that space to temporarily store huge amounts of untreated wastewater, wastewater that would otherwise find its way into the St. Joseph river not anymore though with these smart sensors these smart valves so uh essentially um what ends up happening is that you know 75 80 percent of the problem is solved without having to build anything it's just using these sensors and this existing infrastructure underground it's pretty incredible 
That is pretty incredible. Excellent. Smart sewers. Notre Dame. Yeah, love it, right? And it ended up too, I should let you know. Um, so city officials that were interviewed for that story, they estimate that the city has saved something like $450 million with this technology. So, uh, you know, note to any other city officials listening, you could be saving some big bucks and uh, creating a better water infrastructure system for your community. I feel like I did not even know how much sewage cost. I feel like sewage is a, who knew? Uh, I did not. So next on the list, I wrote down World War II planes. Is that on the list? Yes, that is on the list. I'm, uh, I should say, partial to this story. I went out and was field producing it at the Air Zoo in Kalamazoo, Michigan. So to kind of give you um, a little preview before we get into specifics. So essentially during World War II, the Navy trained nearly 15,000 pilots to take off and land on makeshift aircraft carriers on Lake Michigan. I think a lot of people don't know about this. So during the course of the training, 130 planes ended up at the bottom of the lake. If you're like me, you're probably thinking, oh my God, does that mean 130 pilots died? No, it does not. Something like, um, it was like eight to 12 pilots. Um, I'm not like you. What I was like is, I wonder if we can get someone to go scuba diving there. So, yeah, the pilots too. I'm glad. So, so glad that it was 130 pilots. Yeah. Essentially, though, you're right on track thinking about um, getting these ship or getting these aircraft rather out of the bottom of the lake. So essentially now there's an effort to rescue and restore some of these planes. And Great Lakes now went and visited the Air Zoo in Kalamazoo, Michigan to get a closer look at the efforts. And what I can tell you um so many volunteers and so much enthusiasm goes into like years long restoration efforts. Uh, everything from first locating where the planes are at the bottom of the lake, pulling them out, and then like painstakingly with soapy water, cleaning all the parts and making them look beautiful. It was, a, it was really, really cool to see up close. That is really cool. Huh. I'm going to have to find out about that. I'm going to watch this segment and then we're going to try to recruit somebody to be on the show because I'm curious about that. We've had, we, anytime there's a shipwreck, we talk about shipwrecks, nonstop shipwrecks, but uh, this is maybe even one step farther talking about plane wrecks. Well, and, and I should say too, Terrace Lysenko is the person who um, is kind of responsible for organizing the actual uh, excavation of these aircraft. And when I asked him, you know, how did you get into this? He said, well, I love adventure, Great Lakes, you know, and so many people are all about the Great Lakes shipwrecks. Not as many people are into the aircraft. So he essentially kind of carved out a little niche for himself and is working on getting these aircraft out and also kind of, you know, um, sharing the story about, about this entire thing that not a lot of people know about this pilot program. That is amazing. I cannot wait uh, to look into that. Very cool. All right. And then last but not least, the catch. So the catch is like your little, uh, it's your version of Great Lakes News, if you will, uh, with a different theme song, I think. But it's, it's and so in there, one, one story caught my eye because I was very concerned about this idea. I'm from the Gulf South. And so one thing we always have to worry about is jellyfish. And so what I tell my kids about the Great Lakes, we go up to swim, is I tell them two things. You're not going to get eaten by a shark, probably. Um, unlikely. And, and, and you don't have to worry about jellyfish, but now it turns out maybe I have been lying. There are jellyfish in the Great Lakes too. You have been lying. But what I can tell you is that, you know, you're in good company because I've actually swam in this area where apparently there are uh, Great Lakes freshwater jellyfish. And I didn't know about them. A big part of the reason is because they are really tiny. So like you said, the catch is essentially a segment where it's a news roundup. So I'm going around. I wish I could say I was the one doing all of this, you know, wonderful investigative reporting 
about these freshwater jellyfish. But I actually ended up talking with a reporter at MLive. Uh, her name is Michaela Coffey. She's been reporting on this group of college students that actually tipped her off to these freshwater jellyfish. So these uh, college students are at Eastern Michigan University. They're studying freshwater jellyfish in Dexter Township, Michigan. So a lot of people don't know about the jellyfish, but they've actually been here for decades. And according to Michaela, a lot of the researchers seem to think that they come from uh, what is called the Yangtze River Valley in China, and that they were actually transported here with ornamental aquatic plants. Pretty interesting. And like I said, very tiny, but venomous, but also because they're very tiny, not going to do a lot of damage to humans. Well, that's good. I'll just have to keep my pinky finger away, I guess. Yeah. But so these are invasive then. I did not realize. I mean, oh my goodness, we have tons of people doing invasive work at Sea Grant, and I did not know about these jellyfish. Do you know if they're causing ecological concerns or they do we not know yet? Uh, my understanding is that they're still sort of being studied and being looked at, sort of the implications of their presence, um, just how many there are, um, and kind of, you know, what the future of the of the ecosystem within that particular body of water, and also within the larger region as a whole, what it might mean to have these jellyfish here. But um, as of right now, it was sort of just the students looking at them, capturing some of them, looking at them in labs, and kind of trying to figure out, you know, what does their presence mean to the existing ecosystem? Oh, one of the um, things that we talk about a lot is the idea of a goby dog sandwich. All right. So, you know, these round gobies, right? Yes. They're a, uh, yeah, yeah. And so my thought, if uh, my line of work doesn't work out, is they're kind of hot dog shaped, right? And so my big theory is that we should, I should make a goby dog stand. You take the uh, gobies and you put them in the bun, you put the little pickle on them and the, the celery salt or whatever, and you sell them in Chicago. <laughs> I've been told by many people, this is a horrible idea, but those people are small minded. Um, but it just occurred to me that now we could also have a peanut butter and jellyfish oh. sandwich. And Stuart I think, uh, literally took the, you took it out of my mouth. I'm right there with you. Peanut butter and jellyfish sandwiches. Why not? Well, for four bucks, you can put it right in your own mouth. I just have to design it first. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> well, if people want to go and listen to this episode, where should they go to? Everybody can check out everything that I just mentioned and so much more at greatlakesnow.org. That is the spot. You can see the landing page. You can see a map. You can see related segments and extras and read and watch even more about all of these stories. Greatlakesnow.org. Yeah. And y'all have educational materials. Or if Teachers, if you're listening, go there. You got lesson plans. It's all the best stuff. Fantastic. Thank you so much for bringing us news from the lakes we love. Anna Seisling. And we will see you next time on Great Lakes News. Sounds great, Stuart. Thanks. about the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work that we do at iicgrant.org or Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. No mastodon. We don't have a mastodon. Do we need a mastodon? They went extinct. It went extinct, but... <laughs> Phoenix-like, they are rising again. Carolyn Foley is our senior producer, and our producers are Hope Charters, Megan Gunn, and Reedy Miles. Ethan Chitty right here, associate producer, fixer. And our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. This show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. 
If you have a question or comment about the show, send us an email, teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com, or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep grading those lakes. Be-de-de.